sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I suppose I should uh, first uh, thank listeners for their patience while we took August off. Aren't you going to plug your book? No, well, yes, but so abruptly. Uh, do you... Should we just start over? 31 Rotten Pumpkins. That pretty much describes it. That's that's it. It's a, a picture book of rotting pumpkins. Something we all need. Well, and most of them have faces, actually, like jack-o'-lanterns or skulls. It, it's creepy. And uh, they're uh, rendered like 17th century paintings. Um, you can find it on our website or just Google 31 Rotten Pumpkins. Spell it out. Don't use the numeral 31. One for each day of October. Hmm? And we have werewolves and Transylvania in the show to start setting the Halloween mood. Yes, it's nice to feel that fall is on its way. Uh, Not that the vacation wasn't also nice. It was good to see Mother in the new hives, but she... It's... I'm glad she allowed you to come back. Oh, she likes that I have this position. Is uh, that why she was trying to kill me with that watch? You know that's not what's going on. It's not you. It's just that you're in this house. It's the house she has problems with. What is this thing with her in the house? It's just... It has a bad energy, she says. She says bad things happened here. She doesn't know anything about this house. Of course you would think that, but... Well... She does have insights into certain things. How could she? At least about this house. Is this some special bee inside or something? I know she talks to the hives. Not the hives. To the bees. The grandmother bees. And they tell her the house is cursed? Well, she knows that bad things happened here. I don't know exactly when, but in the past, very bad things. God. She says... She says there was a murder in this house. That's what the bees told her? Yes. A murder? Really? Yes. In this house? Yes, and I don't think she's crazy. I've noticed a few things. You know I have. Things happening here that aren't right or don't feel right. A strange feeling you get sometimes. Am I supposed to take this seriously? I don't care if you take it seriously. It's what she says. In the 1800s sometime is when it's supposed to have happened. Well, of course it's not true. That's fine, if that's what you think. I I think the bees have misled her. Fine. Fine. 
In point of fact, it was not a murder, but a suicide. I knew it! They aren't the same. They're two different things. Why didn't you tell me? Murder and suicide are practically opposites. She couldn't have been more wrong. This is very upsetting. Well, as you said, it was a long time ago. Can we take a break? Let me do the intro. This is episode 94, Master of the Wolves, Transylvanian and Balkan Wolf Lore. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who receive monthly rewards, including those uh, short bonus episodes you may have heard in August. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. That's a bit from the 1857 poem, St. Andrew's Night, by the Romanian poet, dramatist, and statesman, Vasile Alexandri. The recording is just something I found floating around Romanian language YouTube channels. Uh, in English translation, it begins... The undead come, they gather, leaving their coffins. You Christian peoples, make saving crosses, for it is the night horrible, the night of St. Andrew. November 30th celebrations of St. Andrew's Night in Romania, uh, the modern country largely encompassing and extending a bit beyond the uh, historical region of Transylvania, uh, is something that should be familiar to those who listen to our Transylvanian Vampires uh, episode from last year. In that episode, we discussed how on this night, garlic is eaten and used as a charm against the undead who freely wander on that night. I believe they may have also mentioned some uh, fortune-telling rituals performed on uh, St. Andrew's Night, as it's one of those occasions when the other realm is supposed to be particularly accessible. St. Andrew's is also a night strongly associated with wolves and werewolves. Wolves, which were sometimes said to acquire the gift of speech on that night, would also be preternaturally enabled on their hunt, able to turn their heads all the way back to see their own tails, they say, and highly likely to attack. To guard against this, the farmers traditionally adhered wax crosses on the horns of their cattle. Werewolves, too, were on the prowl on St. Andrew's night.
Unlike werewolf narratives from France and Germany, which usually portray the creatures as witches intentionally transforming themselves into wolves, becoming a Romanian werewolf is a fate imposed upon its victim quite beyond control. This eastern type of werewolf is also common in Hungary and beyond Romania in the other Balkan states. There are two wolf-like monsters in Romanian folklore, the Vorkalak and the Prikulic, the latter at least originally being probably a closer match to our idea of a werewolf, though it's a bit hard to pin down. Many sources regard the Prikulic as also undead, a uh, sinful or a violent individual fated to return from the grave in this form. Sometimes, it seems, the cause may be less related to a malicious nature than to aberrant behavior. Uh, for instance, I find one source alleging that to drink one's own urine, or the urine of a wolf, is all that it takes to rise again as a Krikulic. But uh, other sources talk about werewolves being born to this condition. I have in the misfortune of being the ninth of nine siblings, or being the product of incest, or the offspring of a mortal woman and an undead moroi, or being conceived by a couple disregarding the church-mandated abstinence on Christmas or Easter Eve. It's also said that an individual born a prikudich may return after death as a strigoi, Romania's version of the vampire. The physical appearance of these creatures is likewise a bit unclear. Sometimes the wolf-like traits are described as if they were actually birth defects, a child born with wolf's ears or a wolf's head. Hair lips are even mentioned in this context, or a tail. If uh, you'll recall from our episode, Strigoi are sometimes even said to have tails. However, these traits may come and go through shape-shifting into this monstrous form, and typically it's the head of a wolf on a man's body, or possibly the inverse. But Romanian sources I consulted also mention uh, other animals whose form the Prikulic might assume could be a dog, a pig, a cat, a snake, or a frog, but never what are called the holy animals. That is the hedgehog, sheep, deer, dove, Swallow or bee. Yes, holy bees. The uh, Prikulic, as you'd assume, is usually, though not always, described as nocturnal, with uh, one source telling me they only roam two hours before and after midnight. And they're more likely to be encountered in desolate or untraveled places, deep woods, at crossroads, and cemeteries where they might feed on corpses. Like the Strigoi, they may also eat livestock and may be responsible for spreading disease. They're usually described as being particularly energetic and agile, and I find that the word Prikolic in a secondary meaning is used by Romanians to describe a particularly lively and unruly child. Now, the Vorkalak, the other creature usually taking the form of a wolf, 
originally seems to have occupied a um, very limited and specific mythological niche. It is a creature that rises into the heavens at night to eat the moon, thereby causing an eclipse, or sometimes even the lunar phases. Solar eclipses are also associated with the Barakulaku. Usually, it's said to do this out of the demonic spirit of malice, creating darkness more conducive to uh, evil deeds practiced by its uh, evil compatriots. Or it uh, may be sent as a punishing agent of God's wrath to terrorize a sinful population into obedience. In uh, other cases, the Verkulak's attacks on the moon or sun would traditionally be opposed by villagers attempting to scare it off with noise, banging on pots, shooting rifles, or playing fiddles. Uh, prayers, I'm happy to report, can also help against the Verkulak. A uh, connection to more familiar werewolf mythology is uh, present in the notion that a mortal, that a normal human, can transform into a Verkulak usually in sleep, like a witch sending her spirit from her body as an uh, astral participant in the Sabbath or as uh, some animal that will torment neighbors in the night. While in uh, accounts by folklorists and in stories from rural settings, the uh, term prikulich is more commonly used to describe a werewolf-like being, Berkalak seems to be a, a term gaining popularity even sometimes uh, streamlined into the notion of a western werewolf without any of this uh, eclipse mischief associated. This uh, transition from a, a sort of a primordial cosmological monster into a form assumed by a cursed mortal seems to come uh, via vampire lore. The uh, Romanian Verkulak derives from the uh, Greek Vordulakas uh, via its uh, Bulgarian and then Serbian cognates, all uh, which are used to describe not a werewolf, but a vampire-like being, more like a strugoi. This uh, connection was reinforced by Tolstoy's novella from 1884, The Family of the Vordulak, which borrows the uh, Balkan word to describe the vampire, and thereby promoted the word into Western literature and eventually films and comics and internet monster lore. In uh, Romania's native mythology, however, the creature which eats the moon is not even always wolf-like. It's sometimes described as a dragon, of which there are two species, the zmo or balaur. Probably the zmo is intended as it's sometimes described as a dragon-like man, and in one ancient ballad is said to steal the moon and sun from the sky. And this connection between dragons and wolves happens to bring us to an all-important icon of ancient Romanian culture. Could this be the weird sound used to scare the locals some 2,000 years ago? It sounds eerie to me, but it must have sounded really strange in an age that didn't have as many artificial noises as we do today. The uh, audio weirdness here is clipped from an old BBC4 uh, history series, Time Team, and it represents an archaeologist's attempt to recreate the sound of a draco, or a dragon-styled standard, 
uh, carried here by a charging horseman. This noisemaker, the Draco, is a small dragon's head, crafted of light metal and mounted on a pole and trailing a sort of windsock uh, representing a snaky body. Uh, presumably there's also some sort of uh, concealed whistle inside the head to uh, catch the wind. It uh, would not only have provided an orientation marker for soldiers in, on a chaotic battlefield, but may also have served archers as a means of gauging wind direction. Though uh, it's presented here as belonging to the Romans, in fact, the Draco was borrowed from the Dacians, whose land the Romans conquered and absorbed. Dacia's stronghold was in modern Romania's Carpathian Mountains. Their empire extended over Romania out to the Black Sea to include uh, parts of Ukraine, Serbia, and Bulgaria. Romanians are very proud of their Dacian roots and often seem still perturbed to have been overrun by Rome centuries ago, a development responsible for the country's name, as well as their Latin-based rather than Slavic language. Before Dacians were recast as Romans, they'd been understood largely as Thracians, but the influence of neighboring Scythians and later the Celts contributed to the Dacian culture. The Dacian Draco, as can be seen in ancient representations, had distinctly canine ears and nose and jaws, and the wolf seems to have had a religious significance to that culture, and their uh, Draco uh, seems to be straddling that same region between wolf and dragon the Smo occupies. The symbolic importance of the wolf to the Dacians is something some scholars have even found reinforced by what they believe to be the etymological origin of the name Dacian, that is in the Phrygian word meaning wolf. As soldiers, the Dacians were certainly fierce as wolves. Their ancestral Thracian homeland was regarded as the home of the gods of war, the Roman Mars, as well as the Greek Ares. The ancient historian Herodotus, for instance, called the Dacians the bravest and most righteous of the Thracians. Despite being such daunting foes, two year-long campaigns by Emperor Trajan around the turn of the first century ended up crushing Dacia into submission, and Rome's victory was commemorated with a grand monument, Trajan's Column, on which we can see depictions of the more wolf-like Draco carried by Rome's conquered enemies. Though very little is actually known of the Dacian religion, there are some hints in ancient texts, including allusions to a particularly brutal rite befitting a warrior race. Herodotus, in Book 4 of his Histories, writes of the Dacians... They believe they are immortal, forever living in the following sense. They think they do not die, and that the one who dies joins Zalmoxis, a divine being. Every four years, they send a messenger to Zalmoxis, who is chosen by chance. They ask him to tell Zalmoxis what they want on that occasion. This mission is performed in the following way. Men standing there for that purpose hold three spears. 
other people take the one who was sent to Zalmoxis by his hands and feet and fling him in the air on the spears. If he dies pierced, they think that the divinity is going to help them. If he does not die, it is he who is accused, and they declare that he is a bad person. He goes on to describe Zalmoxis as a sort of deified teacher from Thrace, and mentions that he had been a slave to Pythagoras, whose own mystical teachings are thoroughly interwoven throughout Western esoteric traditions. Upon gaining his freedom, Zalmoxis, he says, returned to his less worldly compatriots in Thrace and shared with them the occult secrets of Pythagoreanism as well as Greek wisdom generally. And that he made a hall where he entertained and fed the leaders and taught them that neither he nor his guests nor any of their descendants would ever die, but that they would go to a place where they would live forever and have all good things. While he was doing as I have said and teaching his doctrine, he was meanwhile making an underground chamber. When this was finished, he vanished from the sight of the Thracians and went down into the underground chamber where he lived for three years while the Thracians wished him back and mourned him for dead. Then in the fourth year, he appeared to the Thracians and thus they came to believe what Zalmoxis had told them. While this is the only ancient text mentioning Zalmoxis, a huge body of more speculative literature has grown up around the figure. Most prominent here would be Mircea Eliade, the influential Romanian philosopher, novelist, and religious historian who uh, taught at the University of Chicago in the 60s and 70s. Eliada emphasized parallels between Zalmoxis and Christ, but also sought to establish his connection with the Dacian wolf, proposing the existence of a soldier's initiatory cult, one based on the teachings of Zalmoxis and with the wolf as its totem. Along with less prominent writers, Eliade fueled something of an obsession with Zalmoxis in Romania, Roughly a century ago, one of Romania's many caves in the uh, southwestern county of Otenia uh, was declared the original habitation of the teacher, and legends of hidden gold, uh, ghostly chanting, and other paranormal happenings were soon woven around the location. It doesn't hurt that a monk staying there in the distant past also happened to paint an image of the Grim Reaper on one of its walls, or that it's full of bats. There is also a neo-pagan movement purporting to embrace the rites and teachings of Zalmoxis. New scriptures have been channeled and altars and hearths for ritual fires and other sacred structures delineated in stone have been erected within the last century. Another aspect of this myth-making has been the legend of the Great White Wolf, sometimes called the Right Hand of Zalmoxis. The story probably came into circulation within the last century, and uh, though I have not been able to locate an original version, I've uh, cobbled together my own translations from various Romanian websites. It's not an original source text, so 
It's a bit unorthodox, but we'll have Mrs. Carswell read it nonetheless. Thank you. Long ago, a disciple of the great Salmoxis, a hermit by the name of Leandro, wandered the land, sharing the wisdom of his teacher. Though young in years, his appearance was marked by long white hair and beard. His home was a cave in the mountains, where he befriended the animals of the forest, particularly the wolves. He taught the Dacians to respect and feed the wolves, and in return the animals fought alongside them in their many battles with the Romans. With time, however, the enemy was able to advance further and further into Dacia. Zalmoxis encouraged bravery among his people, but to stem the tide, the wolves who fought aside the Dacians also required a leader to encourage them in battle. Zalmoxis asked his disciple if he were willing to accept that role, and with his ready consent, he gave the white-haired Leandro the form of a great white wolf. But even this would not bring the victory, as the people had been weakened by their own fear. Hoping to placate the advancing Romans, they offered to kill the great white wolf and present the enemy with his head. Zalmoxis learned of the betrayal before the deed could be done, and with the great white wolf, he withdrew into the sacred mountain, abandoning the Dacians to eventual defeat by the Romans. The wolves, who had fought like brothers beside the Dacians, likewise withdrew from the company of men, and now hide themselves away in the mountains. While stories melding the teacher Zalmoxis with Dacia's iconic wolf appear to be relatively recent, it seems safe to say their inspiration may be found in a genuinely old myth, that of another culture hero paired with the animal, namely Saint Andrew, who is sometimes called the Wolf Saint. Andrew is the patron saint of Romania, and every third male you meet there has his name, Andre, that is. It is a point of pride that Andrew, a disciple of Christ himself, is said to have brought the gospel to Romania, and at a particularly early date, making it the first northern foothold of the new faith beyond Mediterranean Europe and Asia Minor. This belief is based on the writings of a number of early church fathers who mention Andrew visiting the Scythians, which could include what was known as Scythia Minor, an old name for Romania and Bulgaria. Just like Salmoxus, St. Andrew became associated with a particular cave, one he was said to have adopted as his home, a location which is sometimes said he was guided to with the aid of wolves, though this too is another recent tradition as it was only revealed through divine intervention in 1940. Legend says that St. Andrew remained a full 20 years in Romania, a fact Mircea Eliade relates to the religion of Salmoxus, bearing a friendly kinship to the teachings of Christ. As you've uh, probably surmised, nationalistic myth-making plays a uh, significant and ongoing role in Romania. Now, uh, as for St. Andrew as the wolf saint, uh, these legends seem to have much deeper roots in ancient rural traditions, namely that of a figure called 
the master of the wolves, almost certainly a pagan entity, later syncretized with the Christian saint. While described as a fisherman in the Bible, the Romanian Saint Andrew becomes a shepherd whose flocks were never harassed by wolves thanks to a particular power he held over these animals. Like the mythical Dacians of the Great White Wolf legend, Andrew was a sort of brother to the wolves and oversaw their welfare. After departing the earthly realm, he did not, however, abandon this duty. Every year, at the stroke of midnight, on the night of St. Andrew, he returns to share with the wolves what prey they are to be allotted for the coming year. His miraculous presence among the beasts, however, is not a wonder you'd want to witness firsthand. Various legends describe the dire consequences experienced by observers to this event. As I uh, don't have an original source text in English on this again, I've cobbled together a composite translation from various Romanian sources. On the night of St. Andrew, a hunter returning late from an unsuccessful hunt was alarmed to hear the sudden sound of wolves howling from all points in the mountains. Quickly, hiding himself in a tree, he witnessed pack after pack of wolves gathering into an immense congregation under the moonlight. And then something stranger still. Saint Andrew himself appeared among them. One by one, Saint Andrew sent the beasts out to the four corners, telling them what prey they are to claim for the coming year. Just as it seemed every wolf had departed, and all possible prey has been awarded, a particularly old and lame wolf, unable to arrive at midnight, hobbled up. Knowing that even lame wolves must be fed, the saint cast his gaze upon the tree in which the hunter crouched, saying, The hunter who has been watching us from that oak, he is what you will be given. And with that, the holy man vanished. Frozen with fear, the hunter remained shivering in the branches while the wolf settled himself beneath the tree. Finally, with the dawn, the lame wolf stiffly rose up and slowly loped away. Still uncertain whether he had evaded his fate, the hunter decided then and there to never hunt alone, and at night insisted upon sleeping between others accompanying him. But all in vain. In the morning, his bedding was found empty. Only his feet were to be found nearby the camp, the rest of him having been devoured by a beast exceedingly lame, but also exceedingly stealthy having noiselessly snatched him out from between his fellows in the night. By the way, you'll see that detail often repeated in Romanian stories about wolves leaving behind the feet of human prey. And we'll hear more about the dreadful lame wolf toward the end of our show. While the wolf is particularly iconic in Romania, it is not the only country in which this tradition exists. 
The Master of the Wolves mythology can also be found among the South Slavs of Serbia, Bulgaria, and Slovenia, the East Slavs in Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, and even in variations with the Germans and Austrians, Czechs, and Swiss, as well as in rural Greece. Nor is the Master of the Wolves myth always attached to St. Andrew and his day or night. Uh, St. Martin's on November 11th can be the setting as in Greece and Germany, or it can be a bit later on December 6th when St. Nicholas serves as the Master of the Wolves in Russia and Poland. Of course, winter is widely feared as a season rife with starving wolves driven to aggression, and the day can also fall not at the beginning of winter in November or early December, but later, as with the Serbs, who mark occasions on St. Danilo's Day, December 17th, or on St. Sava, January 27th. And St. George's Day, which corresponds with spring festivals on the Eastern calendar, is also associated with the Master of the Wolves tradition in quite a number of countries. While this may at first seem counterintuitive, because it's the time when herds are set out to pasture, it likewise can be an occasion when wolves might require some magic wrangling, bearing in mind that the wolf master, of course, not only feeds, but can restrain the wolves. As you might expect, there were sayings, prayers, and songs associated with the master's control of wolves. In Poland, they offer this appeal. Saint Nicholas, take the keys of paradise, close the gullet of the mad dog, the forest wolf, so that they do not drink the blood or tear the flesh of our lambs and calves. And James Fraser provided a few examples in his Golden Bough, such as the Russian saying about St. George, uh, that is, uh, St. Yorgi. What the wolf holds in its teeth, that Yogori has given. He also mentions another petition sung on St. George's Day in the Smolensk region. Deaf man, deaf man, dost thou hear us? I hear not. God grant that the wolf may not hear our cattle. Cripple, cripple, canst thou catch us? I cannot catch. God grant that the wolf may not catch our cattle. Blind man, blind man, dost thou see us? I see not. God grant that the wolf may not see our cattle. Along with those uh, trusty wax crosses adhered to the horns of cattle in Romania, other charms are used elsewhere. Uh, walking magic circles around livestock among the East Slavs, or uh, magically closing corral gates with uh, locks contrived from branches and string, as in Macedonia. And there are any number of charms used to keep shut the jaws of wolves using sympathetic magic. Scissors are bound shut, as should be the wolf's jaws, and the uh, symbolic jaws of the oven door sometimes must be sealed, and knives and razors are locked away to inhibit those slashing teeth. And as we've learned from our tale, The Lame Wolf and Its Victim, it's unwise to be abroad on these occasions, with magically enabled wolves charging about after their prey. For this reason, all sorts of work or activities beyond the home may be banned, 
Sometimes, as in Serbia, observing the master of the wolves in his annual rite can result in the observer spying on the scene being transformed into a wolf. Jetzt kommt er hier mit seiner Gürt. Er hat das ja schon fleißig ausgehört. Jetzt werden schon bald 27 Wochen. Möchten wir auch schon bald Feier machen. 27 Wochen ist eine lange Zeit. Haben wir uns schon lange auf Martini gefreut. A related tradition, which I discuss in my Krampus book, that of the Wolfauslassen, or the release of the wolves, is practiced on St. Martin's Eve in Austria, and now particularly in certain Bavarian towns, where it's become a tourist draw. It's uh, also sometimes called the Wolfausleuten, or ringing out the wolves. Thanks to what you're hearing, enormous bells worn by shepherds, or now men costumes as shepherds who march through the streets. Interpretations of this tradition are richly ambivalent. There's a celebratory aspect to the bell ringing, as this is the day shepherds also collect their annual fees for a season of work completed. And there's the obvious uh, knee-jerk uh, explanation, which would treat the bells as simply a way to scare off the wolves, which they would certainly do. But that's not really adequate, as the wolves are being symbolically welcomed or released now that all the livestock safely in. So in fact, they are being given license to pursue their prey, just as they are by St. Andrew. There's uh, also something carried about during these festivities called the Martinskerte, or Martin switch. But it's not really used as a switch, really being uh, instead a symbolic uh, beribboned bundle of branches taken back from the pasturelands when the shepherds come in. It's uh, understood as symbolic of the life of the fields, which is soon to go to sleep for the season. The Martinskerte is preserved through the winter and then carried out again by the herdsmen when they return to pasture on May 1st, the equivalent of the Eastern St. George's Day. All of which, I'd say, nicely embodies the seasonal give and take of nature and death and predation, as well as rebirth and fecundity. Returning again to Romania, where there's a plethora of uh, charmingly named traditional holidays celebrating nature and her seasonal cycles. Uh, these include Day of the Cuckoo, Gathering of the Birds, Day of the Bear, Wedding of the Sheep, Mark of the Oxen, Easter of the Horses, Wedding of the Nettles, and Thursday of the Ants. But again, the wolf rules and is celebrated with no less than 35 designated days, of which St. Andrew's is only the best known. Beginning October 18th and running through the end of January, these days are known as the Wolf Holidays. And the wolf's dominion is actually even a bit longer, as symbolically it begins on September 1st and encompasses all of autumn and winter. Spring and summer are said to be under the side of the horse, associated with St. George, who's traditionally represented as a horse-mounted soldier saint. These uh, wolf holidays are organized into autumn and winter groupings known as the Filippi, or the Philips, the Days of Philip, uh, ostensibly named for St. Philip the Apostle, whose uh, feast is celebrated by the Eastern Church on November 18th. 
While uh, this may officially be the source of the name, folk legends define the Phillips or the Philippi differently. A push to explain a multiplicity of the Phillips, local priests have offered the suggestion that these were a band of persecuted apostles thrown into a den of wolves who miraculously refused to eat them. While it's a good cover story for uh, pagan rites devoted to keeping wolves on your side, Romanian folklorist Tudor Pamphila regarded the Filippi as household spirits who protect or punish based on proper observance of their associated customs. The traditions of the Filippi were similar to what I've described for St. Andrew, though in certain regions even more restrictive, and as all this concerned domestic well-being, it was the woman who ran the house who was given responsibility to be sure that the Filippi were kept properly. Among the uh, arcane body of superstitions and banned activities for the first of the Filippi, on October 18th there was the curious notion that ash could not be removed from the hearth as female wolves might find smoldering embers and this would somehow enhance their fertility, and you wouldn't want to increase the predator population, after all. Remaining saint days, each with their own customs, within the Autumn Philippi, are celebrated on November 14th, 21st, and then on St. Andrew's the 30th, which in some regions ends the period, though in others it's St. Nicholas on December 26th. The uh, later winter Philippi are not really well documented, but primarily revolve around the figure appearing on the final day, namely... St. Peter of Winter. While the uh, biblical Apostle Peter's feast actually falls in June, his winter incarnation is strictly a folk figure, and a rather fearsome one at that. Like Andrew, who ends the Autumn Philippi, Peter of Winter's mythology also revolves around feeding wolves known as... The Dogs of St. Peter. The difference here being a rather grim emphasis on sending wolves out against the livestock of those who have not properly kept the Philippi, or even against humans whose indifference to the ritual protocols have been particularly egregious. Now, to return to that lame wolf mentioned in the St. Andrew legends, this particular detail, the wolf's lameness, is not just an interesting storyteller's twist, but actually integral to the mythology of the wolf holidays. In some cases, the Philip, after which these days are supposed to be named, is referred to as Philip the Lame. Another term used is the Lame Gardener. Or at least I believe that's the translation for the uh, archaic word used, though it really doesn't matter, as the word itself was merely a stand-in for the word wolf. Uttering the actual name might summon the beast, you know, as with demons. Our St. Andrew's story portrayed the lame wolf as a surprising killer of humans, but the particular dread attached to this creature, the lame one, goes beyond this. The lame wolf, as the center of the wolf holidays, can himself be not only the master of the wolves, but a master of human fate, something 
bigger than merely a fear of marauding wolves. There's something bigger here, more than a matter of appeasing house spirits with meticulous housekeeping protocols. In Serbia, which was also part of Dacia during this season, they speak about Lame Daba. A demon represented as an old man with a silver beard, clothed in animal skins and, unsurprisingly, usually portrayed in the company of wolves. While some writers regard him as the Christian demonization of the Slavic god Dazbog or Dabog, I'm not really sure if that's the case. There's another path of explanation in Romanian, a clue presented by the Oshitoare, a Romanian version of the Three Fates, mythology found everywhere from Greece to Scandinavia. The Oshitoare are spirits or fairies who present themselves at a child's birth. Two of them spin the threads determining the course of one's life, but the last, the smallest of the three, cuts those threads, ordaining the particulars of one's death. The third, deadly Oshitoare, also happens to be lame. It's not hard to imagine this Greek myth coming up through Thrace and embraced by the Dacians, and by the way, in some tellings, the Greeks made all three of the fates lame, and if not that, they were all old and ugly. But it would be ridiculous to minimize the importance of the natural dangers winter embodied by the wolves. I would say the Ushitoare are likely just one of the threads of this mysterious tradition, if you'll uh, pardon the pun. Wasn't it all the same during my time? This is the result of our modern decline. It wasn't the same, same, same. It wasn't the same. The today, I say, not the same. It wasn't at all. I thought I'd end our show with a recommendation for a wonderfully bizarre film from 1976, which you're hearing in the background. It was directed by a Romanian director and produced there with Russian and French contributions and is called Mama, or alternatively, Rock and Roll Wolf. How do you do? I'm Titi Suda, the friendliest wolf you've met. You'll hear the strangest things about me for it's been said. It's available on YouTube with subtitles or in English. It was uh, simultaneously shot in English, Romanian, and Russian. And I'll link to the film in the show notes. It's uh, loosely based on a story the Grimm's collected, The Wolf and the Seven Young Goats, a version of which is also well known in Romania. The uh, rather basic story of this tale, which is uh, padded out with dozens of songs in a potpourri of styles, uh, revolves around the rock and roll wolf attempting to kidnap the kids of Mrs. Rada, the mama goat. Uh, Kidnap rather than eat, as it is a children's film after all. But it's the uh, weird and playful visuals that actually make the film. It's shot in uh, Romania's Maramurish County, known for its quaint uh, wooden buildings, which are ready-made for fairy tales. And these are uh, populated with a variety of imaginatively costumed animal characters. Besides the wolf and goats, a donkey, a bear, squirrels, and a parrot with a rainbow pompadour. There's also an ice skating sequence performed by the skaters from Moscow's Circus on Ice, and even some dances with the dancers from the Bolshoi Ballet. 
The rock and roll wolf is indeed very rock and roll, belting out his songs in tight leather and a generously mounted wig of purple-gray rocker hair. And he and the goat mama are actually played by rather well-known Russian actors who also happen to be strangely flirty throughout the story. Now, Rado, there's a thing or two I would like to discuss with you. Don't. Don't come any closer. Dearest Rado. This fact has been much noted by Norwegian fans. Apparently, the film really hit it big in Norway, and at some point was annually featured on Norwegian television at Christmas, as well as Easter. The flirting and the wolf's uh, animal magnetism, according to uh, one Norwegian blog I stumbled upon, resulted in it being... Recently voted most disturbing preteen sexual experience by a rather large number of Norwegians. We'll uh, close with a snippet of the title track, Mama, which happens to also have been covered by a number of Norwegian bands. Mommy's home, now you can open the door, don't be afraid now, not I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. We haven't got one for a while. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. This is honestly the only reason we're able to do these uh, deep folklore dives together. When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, as I've mentioned. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show soundscapes heard under the narration, show scripts, uh, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, the bone-and-sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. And I'll probably be putting the pumpkin book into rewards circulation come October. Uh, 31 Rotten Pumpkins on Google. Our latest crop of supporters whom I'd like to thank include Julian Joris, Kate Weisgram, Q Darkness, Bridget Criswell, Taxi Crab, and Jessica, one of the rare and exotic Australian supporters. And Shauna Reed, a returning patron we're delighted to have back, and one who would like to attend the next Bee Circus. Boat and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>